Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. I caught up with my guest today, Ambassador Karen Pierce, in the middle of a very intense day of diplomacy on February 22nd. She is the United Kingdom's ambassador to the United States, and earlier that morning, Boris Johnson announced new British sanctions on certain Russian oligarchs and financial institutions. This was followed by similar sanctions announcements by the European Union and the United States later in the day. These new sanctions come after Vladimir Putin's government formally recognized the independence of two regions of eastern Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk. This specific set of sanctions from the UK, the EU, and the USA seem to be a very calibrated and coordinated response to this provocation, which we discuss at the outset of this interview. So a big thank you to Ambassador Karen Pierce and the team at the British Embassy for helping to put this together. We recorded our conversation live via Twitter Spaces, and Karen Pierce very graciously uh, took some questions from the audience as well, though for the purposes of this podcast episode, that portion uh, has been edited out. To be alerted of a live recording of the podcast, please just follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. All right, now here is my conversation with the United Kingdom's ambassador to the United States, Karen Pierce. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, I'd love to hear this directly from you, uh, but it certainly looks like the unified strategy now is to impose a first set of what might be considered like medium hard sanctions in response to provocations thus far, while holding back on a more intense and sweeping set of sanctions in order to deter a potential further Russian incursion into Ukraine. Uh, given what we've seen today from the UK, the EU, and most recently the USA, is that a fair description of the Allied plan thus far? Uh, well, thanks very much, Mark. And yes, that's exactly right. Uh, over the preceding weeks, the US, the EU, uh, and the UK have been getting together at expert level to make sure that if sanctions were needed, uh, then we coordinated. We coordinate on what areas they cover, uh, which banks, which people, for example, and we coordinate on sequencing. And you're absolutely right. This is a first tranche of sanctions uh, designed to respond to what the Russians did yesterday uh, by recognizing the Donetsk and the Hansk republics uh, and by moving troops forward. Uh, we stand poised to introduce much more sweeping sanctions if aggression doesn't stop. 
And can you maybe take us behind the scenes a little bit? Like, how did this plan come to be? And like, what were some of the key debates and decisions in developing the, developing the plans? I mean, as the UK ambassador to the US, I have to imagine you, you like in the room when these plans are, are decided. Can you give us some some indication, some color behind the scenes of, of what these debates were like? Uh, well, well, I'll try to to do that. Sanctions are actually a very specialised. Uh, area of of diplomatic and and foreign policy. Uh, And you often need a wet towel to to get your head uh, around them because they're complicated uh, because of legislation, complicated in terms of using intelligence sensibly and working out who can legitimately be targeted. And you have to do that in a way that would stand up in a court of law uh, if you were challenged. Uh, So it's not straightforward. Uh, We spend a lot of time pooling information and evidence with our American and EU colleagues. Uh, We in Britain have had to introduce new legislation uh, about sanctions. When we were in the European Union, all our sanctions uh, came either through the EU or through the United Nations outside Um, the EU, we would still apply UN sanctions, but we've had to bring in special legislation. And in fact, the legislation that enabled us to make today's announcement uh, on three individuals and five Russian banks, that was laid before Parliament on 10th of February. Uh, So we've moved pretty fast, uh, but we are doing this in lockstep with the Europeans and the Americans. So that that's an interesting point you make. Since leaving the European Union, the United Kingdom needs a parliamentary action to pass sanctions. Has that sort of complicated uh, the efforts thus far? Uh, no, it hasn't complicated them, actually, Mark. It's enabled us to be more flexible and targeted uh, and also enabled us to move very quickly. So uh, we began a few years ago with what we call Magnitsky Uh, sanctions. Uh, These are human rights sanctions, enabling us to get the assets and travel bans uh, on certain individuals uh, violating and abusing human rights. Uh, We took a leaf uh, out of America's own legislation for that. Uh, But it has meant that we needed different legislation in order to bring in the sorts of sanctions uh, against the Russian banks and individuals that you saw today. Uh, So we're working on that and we stand ready to bring forward further legislation uh, to enable us to curtail the ability of the Russian state and Russian companies to raise funds in our markets and prohibit a range of high-tech exports if we need to do that, if aggression doesn't get rolled back. So further to that, what else might we expect from the United Kingdom specifically in a next round of sanctions should it come to it? Well, I don't want to be too precise because a lot of it will depend on what is actually uh, happening on the ground. Uh, But what the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary were referring to uh, today is um, sanctions against those members of the Duma, uh, the Russian Parliament who voted to recognise the independence of Donetsk uh, and Luhansk. They're also talking about new trade measures, extending the measures that already applied to Crimea after Russians' invasion in 2014, extending those so that no UK company will find itself inadvertently supporting Russia's illegal recognition of the Donbass and and Luhansk. And then we will be coordinating with the EU and the Americans uh, to limit the ability of the Russian state and Russian companies to raise funds 
uh, in the capital markets, as I said, further isolate Russian banks from the global economy. Uh, so you came on my radar as a diplomat at the United Nations, which I cover pretty closely as editor of UN Dispatch. But I, I do know that you spent much of your career as a diplomat focused on Russia. Uh, given what you know about Putin, uh, what sort of sanctions might be effective in deterring a full-scale Russian assault on uh, Ukraine? In you know, if he has made the decision to mount that full-scale assault, will any sort of set, set of sanctions uh, be a deterrent? Uh, well, I think your last point's a, a very good one, Mark. I think there is something that we saw in the Putin address uh, yesterday uh, that goes beyond uh, rationality uh, in his attacks, his verbal attacks uh, on Ukraine. So it's a good question to ask. Nevertheless, uh, you know, we hope for the best as we plan uh, for the worst. So we um, we do have this bigger package and we do hope that will act as a deterrent on further aggression. Uh, but the odds must be that that is not possible. Uh, and sadly, the odds must also be that diplomacy uh, cannot immediately uh, resolve this. So we need to stand ready. One of the um, lines of thought in going after the oligarchs and the banks that we have done today is precisely because they're close to Putin. Uh, we hope that might exert uh, a particular effect. Um, you know, we have gone after banks that uh, have supported annexation in Crimea, who support Putin's uh, defence moves, uh, who support the integration of Crimea uh, in the Russian financial sector. So we are trying to target these so that people in Putin's inner circle are personally um, hurt and targeted by these measures, and hopefully uh, they will bring that home to, to President Putin. Uh, but I just want to add, if I may, going back to the point that, you know, will anything deter him? Uh, I think it's very striking that President Putin spent the last few weeks telling um, everybody what a threat uh, NATO was to Russia. Uh, and Russia, NATO has not actually done anything uh, other than reinforce its own members. And it's President Putin who has rolled the tanks into Ukrainian sovereign territory. Uh, so I think that tells you a lot about his real aim. I mean, given just how much we seem to be on like the precipice of something truly cataclysmic happening in, in Europe, do any off-ramps exist, to your knowledge, any diplomatic off-ramps exist at, at the moment? Uh, like, is there any opportunity you see for this not to escalate further? Of course, you know, the decision being all mostly Putin's, what opportunities exist for de-escalation, if any? Um, I think you're right. The decision is Putin's and it's part of the Putin game plan to make sure that we can't quite figure out uh, which of several options uh, he might pick. In my experience, uh, he always runs more than one option uh, at once. Um, but I do want to stress for the benefit of, of the listeners that the opportunities are there uh, and they have always existed. Putin uh, could have used all the European security and stability measures. You know, Europe is the most overly lawyered up place in the world for stability and security agreements. And there are very many ranging from the Human Rights Helsinki Final Act to the commitment not to uh, cross borders and use force that you find in the organization 
for security and cooperation in Europe. You have Putin, you have Russia agreements with the EU and NATO. There are a great many instruments that could have been used. Uh, the Americans tried to use them. They tried to have bilateral talks and NATO uh, offered NATO-Russia council meetings. All those mechanisms are still there if President Putin wants to take them. But I think, as we were just saying, there now has to be a real doubt as to whether he ever wanted diplomacy to resolve this. So I, I'm curious to get a sense from you what broader geopolitical implications might result from a potential Russian incursion in, into Ukraine. You know, specifically drawing on your experience as an ambassador at the United Nations, where you know, for things to happen at the Security Council, you need just like the routine day-to-day -day cooperation between Russia and the West on you know, matters far from Russia and the West, from you know, peacekeeping in the Central African Republic, mandate renewals, things like that. To what extent do you see that uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, a full-scale invasion, may impact other aspects of routine diplomacy at the United Nations and beyond? Uh, well, your your general point is is true, Mark. But the Security Council over the past five years, shall we say, uh, has shown itself capable of dealing with second order issues, uh, including some quite difficult issues with Russia and China. And then uh, where it tends to struggle uh, is on the first order issues of which uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is absolutely the most important development uh, against European security that we have seen possibly since the end of World War II in 1945 uh, and certainly since the, uh, the Bosnia Wars uh, in the 1990s. So, you know, it's such a serious uh, move. But the Security Council uh, did debate it last night um, on the geostrategic and geopolitical implications. I will simply quote the Kenyan uh, ambassador. Kenya is on the Security Council and he called it uh, an act of neo-colonialism. Um, so I would hope that what President Putin is now faced with is the opprobrium of the world, uh, particularly all those in the world who believe in open societies. Um, it is an article of the UN Charter that you do not use force against another country. You do not cross borders uh, using force. So I would hope that out of this, difficult as it is, comes a reaffirmation from a very large part of the UN's members of all those important rules that govern international affairs, because it has been Russia and China's aim for the past few years to actually disrupt those rules and to try and have a competition to see who sets the rules of global affairs. So I'm hopeful that what we will see is the world pushing back on President Putin's adventurism. We're not hearing a tremendous amount of discussion, at least here in American media, about the potential humanitarian fallout from a Russian invasion of Ukraine and the refugee crisis it may provoke, particularly in, in Poland. Um, obviously, you can't speak to your intelligence assessments, but how are you perceiving and how concerned are you about the humanitarian implications of a, a war in Ukraine, a, a large war in Ukraine, and what impact might that have on European security, you know, in NATO countries like Poland and other countries like U uh, Hungary that, that border uh, Ukraine? It, it's a very important part of, of the whole equation. Uh, and one reason why we, you know, even at this late stage, appeal 
to President Putin not to go uh, any further and, and to de-escalate uh, and pull back. Um, a certain amount of planning uh, is going on at NATO and, and in the European Union on possible humanitarian scenarios. Uh, we ourselves, as the Brits, the Prime Minister has told the NATO Secretary General that we will have a thousand more British troops uh, ready to go to support a humanitarian response. Uh, and we have recently given uh, a large chunk of money, which I think is about $70 million, but I'd have to check that uh, to support a future humanitarian response. Uh, so it's something we watch incredibly carefully uh, alongside all our measures to return to security and stability in this important part of Europe. Uh, I, I guess, lastly, you know, obviously much of your time is focused, rightly so, on the crisis in Ukraine. But you know, there are other global crises uh, that also ought to demand your attention and the attention of top diplomats around the world. To what extent does like a major crisis like this distract or um, upend or otherwise disrupt impact your uh, ability to focus on other key areas like Afghanistan or conflict in Ethiopia or other areas that are relevant and important to British foreign policy? Uh, in, in my experience, Mark, um, when you, you get another crisis added to the, the ones we're already dealing with, particularly uh, when it's one of this, this magnitude, um, it, it means everybody works longer hours and, and they work harder because uh, we, we've got to make sure that we don't take our eyes off these other crises uh, while we're dealing with this terribly important one uh, in the heart of, of Europe. Um, it typically means we pull people off lesser priority work. So in the embassy, uh, for example, uh, we have a bunch of people working really hard, uh, including through the night to monitor what's happening, uh, to liaise with the Americans, to liaise with other uh, embassies here and send advice uh, back to the UK. And some of those people are drawn from uh, sections in the embassy that don't typically uh, deal with foreign policy. And I think you find uh, that's uh, how it is in, in most capitals. But you're absolutely right. Uh, we also need to keep a very close eye on what is happening elsewhere in case uh, some other bad guys uh, decide to take advantage of the fact that a lot of attention uh, is focused on Ukraine at the moment. So it's not it's not easy, but you know we we redouble our efforts basically. You know, aside from the military front, diplomatically, are there any indicators or inflection points coming up in the next you know day or two or hour or two that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you how this situation may may evolve? Uh, well, one would would watch for signs of de-escalation or an intent uh, to de-escalate uh, that might. Uh, encourage diplomatic moves. I don't want to uh, mislead anybody and have you go away thinking those moves are imminent. Uh, we have seen no sign of them. But alongside watching what the Russians are going to do next militarily uh, and watching what uh, the Ukrainian military uh, and indeed ordinary people are going to do uh, about what the Russians do, one would obviously watch for uh, any hint that the Russians were, even at this stage, uh, prepared to go back to some sort of diplomatic route. Um, so we, you know, we're all alert for this. We we keep in touch with the Americans and the Europeans and 
uh, our friends in the uh, Eastern Europe um, and throughout NATO, uh, and we pool information uh, and we pool our assessments to make sure we don't miss anything important. But I'm afraid I can't hold out much hope. Uh, well, a- Ambassador, thank you so much for your time, for taking questions for me and for graciously uh, taking questions from my audience. Uh, we we appreciate it. And uh, good luck uh, these next few you know hours and, and days. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for all the questions. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ambassador Pierce for her time on an exceedingly uh, intense day of Russia-focused diplomacy. You know, these uh, events on the ground are seemingly changing by the hour, but I I think this conversation will give you some insight uh, into how a top government official is uh, approaching these key questions uh, regarding Russia and Ukraine. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.